Chapter One of Fighting the Whales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fighting the Whales by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter One In Trouble to Begin With. There are few things in this world that have filled me with so much astonishment as the fact that man can kill a whale, that a fish more than sixty feet long and thirty feet round the body, with the bulk of three hundred fat oxen rolled into one, with the strength of many hundreds of horses, able to swim at a rate that would carry it right round the world in twenty-three days, that can smash a boat to atoms with one slap of its tail and stave in the planks of a ship with one blow of its thick skull, that such a monster can be caught and killed by man is most wonderful to hear of, but I can tell from experience that it is much more wonderful to see. There is a wise saying which I have often thought much upon. It is this, knowledge is power. Man is but a feeble creature, and if he had to depend on his own bodily strength alone, he could make no head against even the ordinary brutes in this world, but the knowledge which has been given to him by his maker has clothed man with great power, so that he is more than a match for the fiercest beast in the forest or the largest fish in the sea. Yet with all his knowledge, with all his experience and all his power, the killing of a great old sperm whale costs man a long, tough battle. Sometimes it even costs him his life. It is a long time now since I took to fighting the whales. I have been at it man and boy for nigh forty years and many a wonderful sight have I seen, many a desperate battle have I fought in the fisheries of the North and South Seas. Sometimes, when I sit in the chimney corner of a winter evening, smoking my pipe with my old messmate Tom Lokins, I stare into the fire and think of the days gone by, till I forget where I am, and go on thinking so hard that the flames seem to turn into melting fires, and the bars of the grate into dead fish, and the smoke into sails and rigging, and I go to work cutting up the blubber and stirring the oil pots, or pulling the bow oar and driving the harpoon at such a rate that I can't help giving a shout, which causes Tom to start and cry, Hello, Bob? My name is Bob Ludbury, you see. Hello, Bob? What's the matter? To which I reply, Tom, can it all be true? Can what be true? says he with a stare of surprise, for Tom is getting into his dotage now and then I chuckle and tell him I was only thinking of old times, and so he falls to smoking again and I to staring at the fire and thinking as hard as ever. The way in which I was first led to go after the whales was curious. This is how it happened. About forty years ago, when I was a boy of nearly fifteen years of age, I lived with my mother in one of the seaport towns of England. There was great distress in the town at that time, and many of the hands were out of work. My employer, a blacksmith, had just died, and for more than six weeks I had not been able to get employment or to earn a farthing. This caused me great distress, for my father had died without leaving a penny in the world, and my mother depended on me entirely. The money I had saved out of my wages was soon spent, and one morning when I sat down to breakfast my mother looked across the table and said in a thoughtful voice, "'Robert, dear, this meal has cost us our last half-penny.' My mother was old and frail, and her voice very gentle. She was the most trustful, uncomplaining woman I ever knew. I looked up quickly into her face as she spoke. All the money gone, mother? I, all. It will be hard for you to go without your dinner, Robert, dear. 
"'It will be harder for you, mother,' I cried, striking the table with my fist. Then a lump rose in my throat and almost choked me. I could not utter another word. It was with difficulty I managed to eat the little food that was before me. After breakfast I rose hastily and rushed out of the house, determined that I would get my mother her dinner, even if I should have to beg for it. But I must confess that a sick feeling came over me when I thought of begging. Hurrying along the crowded streets without knowing very well what I meant to do, I came at last to an abrupt halt at the end of the pier. Here I went up to several people and offered my services in a wild sort of way. They must have thought that I was drunk, for nearly all of them said gruffly that they did not want me. Dinner time drew near, but no one had given me a job, and no wonder, for the way in which I tried to get one was not likely to be successful. At last I resolved to beg. Observing a fat, red-faced old gentleman coming along the pier, I made up to him boldly. He carried a cane with a large gold knob on the top of it. That gave me hope, for, of course, thought I, he must be rich. His nose, which was exactly the color and shape of the gold knob on his cane, was stuck in the center of a round, good-natured countenance, the mouth of which was large and firm, the eyes bright and blue. He frowned as I went forward, hat in hand, but I was not to be driven back. The thought of my starving mother gave me power to crush down my rising shame. Yet I had no reason to be ashamed. I was willing to work if only I could have got employment. Stopping in front of the old gentleman, I was about to speak when I observed him quietly button up his breeches pocket. The blood rushed to my face, and turning quickly on my heel, I walked away without uttering a word. "'Hello!' shouted a gruff voice just as I was moving away. I turned and observed that the shout was uttered by a broad, rough-looking jack-tar, a man of about two or three-and-thirty, who had been sitting all the forenoon on an old cask, smoking his pipe and basking in the sun. "'Hello?' said he again. "'Well,' said I, "'what do you mean, youngster, by going on in that there fashion all the morning, a-bothering everybody and making a fool of yourself like that, eh?' "'What's that to you?' said I savagely, for my heart was sore and heavy, and I could not stand the interference of a stranger. "'Oh, it's nothing to me, of course,' said the sailor, picking his pipe quietly with his clasp-knife. "'But come here, boy, I've something to say to you.' "'Well, what is it?' said I, going up to him somewhat sulkily. The man looked at me gravely through the smoke of his pipe and said, "'You're in a passion, me young buck, that's all. And in case you didn't know it, I thought I'd tell you.' I burst into a fit of laughter. "'Well, I believe you're not far wrong, but I'm better now.' "'Ah, that's right,' said the sailor, with an approving nod of his head. "'Always confess when you're in the wrong. Now, younger, let me give you a bit of advice. Never get into a passion if you can help it. And if you can't help it, get out of it as fast as possible. And if you can't get out of it, just give a great roar to let off the steam and turn about and run.' There's nothing like that. Passion hain't got legs. You can't hold on to a feller when he's running. If you keep it up till you almost split your timbers, passion has no chance. It must go astern. Now, lad, I've been watching you all the morning, and I see there's a screw loose somewhere. If you'll tell me what it is, see if I don't help you. The kind, frank way in which this was said quite won my heart, so I sat down on the old cask and told the sailor all my sorrows. "'Boy,' said he when I had finished, "'I'll put you in the way of helping your mother. I can get you a berth in my ship, if you're willing to take a trip to the whale fishery of the South Seas.' "'And who will look after my mother when I'm away?' said I. The sailor looked perplexed at the question. "'Ah, 
that's a puzzler, he replied, knocking the ashes out of his pipe. Will you take me to your mother's house, lad? Willingly, said I, and jumping up I led the way. As we turned to go, I observed that the old gentleman with the gold-headed cane was leaning over the rail of the pier at a short distance from us. A feeling of anger instantly rose within me, and I exclaimed, loud enough for him to hear, I do believe that stingy old chap has been listening to every word we've been saying. I thought I observed a frown on the sailor's brow as I said this, but he made no remark, and in a few minutes we were walking rapidly through the streets. My companion stopped at one of those stores so common in seaport towns, where one can buy almost anything, from a tallow candle to a brass cannon. Here he purchased a pound of tea, a pound of sugar, a pound of butter, and a small loaf, all of which he thrust into the huge pockets of his coat. He had evidently no idea of proportion or of household affairs. It was a simple, easy way of settling the matter to get a pound of everything. In a short time we reached our house, a very old one, in a poor neighborhood, and entered my mother's room. She was sitting at the table when we went in, with a large Bible before her, and a pair of horn spectacles on her nose. I could see that she had been out gathering coals and cinders during my absence, for a good fire burned in the grate and the kettle was singing cheerily thereon. "'I've brought a friend to see you, mother,' said I. "'Good day, mistress,' said the sailor bluntly, sitting down on a stool near the fire. "'You seem to be going to have your tea.' "'I expect to have it soon,' replied my mother. "'Indeed?' said I, in surprise. "'Have you anything in the kettle?' "'Nothing but water, my son.' "'Has anybody brought you anything, then, since I went out?' "'Nobody.' "'Why, then, mistress,' broke in the seaman, "'how can you expect to have your tea so soon?' My mother took off her spectacles, looked calmly in the man's face, laid her hand on the Bible, and said, "'Because I have been a widow-woman these three years, and never once in all that time have I gone a single day without a meal. When the usual hour came, I put on my kettle to boil, for this word tells me that the Lord will provide. I expect my tea tonight.' The sailor's face expressed puzzled astonishment at these words, and he continued to regard my mother with a look of wonder as he drew forth his supplies of food and laid them on the table. In a short time we were all enjoying a cup of tea and talking about the whale fishery and the difficulty of my going away while my mother was dependent on me. At last the sailor rose to leave us. Taking a five-pound note from his pocket, he laid it on the table and said, "'Mistress, this is all I have in the world, but I've got neither family nor friends, and I'm bound for the South Seas in six days. So if you'll take it, you're welcome to it, and if your son Bob can manage to cast loose from you without leaving you to sink, I'll take him aboard the ship that I sail in. He'll always find me at the Bowling Griffin in the High Street, or at the end of the pier.' While the sailor was speaking, I observed a figure standing in a dark corner of the room near the door, and on looking more closely I found that it was the old gentleman with the nose like his cane knob. Seeing that he was observed, he came forward and said, "'I trust that you will forgive my coming here without invitation, but I happen to overhear part of the conversation between your son and this seaman, and I am willing to help you over your little difficulty, if you will allow me.' The old gentleman said this in a very quick, abrupt way, and looked as if he were afraid his offer might be refused. He was much heated, with climbing our long stair, no doubt, and as he stood in the middle of the room, puffing and wiping his bald head with a handkerchief, my mother rose hastily and offered him a chair. "'You are very kind, sir,' she said. "'Do sit down, sir. I'm sure I don't know why you should take so much trouble.' 
but dear me, you are very warm. Will you take a cup of tea to cool you? Thank you, thank you, with much pleasure, unless, indeed, your son objects to a stingy old chap sitting beside him. I blushed when he repeated my words and attempted to make some apology, but the old gentleman stopped me by commencing to explain his intentions in short, rapid sentences. To make a long story short, he offered to look after my mother while I was away, and to prove his sincerity, laid down five shillings and said he would call with that sum every week as long as I was absent. My mother, after some trouble, agreed to let me go, and before that evening closed, everything was arranged, and the gentleman, leaving his address, went away. The sailor had been so much filled with surprise at the suddenness of all this that he could scarcely speak. Immediately after the departure of the old gentleman, he said, Well, good-bye, mistress, good-bye, Bob, and throwing on his hat in a careless way, left the room. Stop, I shouted after him when he had got about halfway down the stair. Hello? What's wrong now? Nothing. I only forgot to ask your name. Tom Lokins, he bellowed in the hoarse voice of a regular boatswain, which was my father's name before me. So saying, he departed, whistling Rule Britannia with all his might. Thus the matter was settled. Six days afterwards I rigged myself out in a blue jacket, white ducks, and a straw hat, and went to sea. End of chapter 1